Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. What happened to music that meant something? The Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Hey, this is not a test. This is rock and roll. Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are gearing up for the Academy Awards. We're going to count down the best movie soundtracks of all time. Plus, we'll talk about the album that shocked Grammy viewers and us by taking Album of the Year. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news. Greg, that's a little bit of rehab by Amy Winehouse, who won three of the top four honors at the Grammy Awards uh, last week. She won Best New Artist. She won Song and Record of the Year, both for that song, ironically enough, performed fresh out of rehab in London because she couldn't get a visa because she's been such a drug-addled mess that the U.S. was reluctant to let her into this country. It's a sad commentary that she was, you know, that this woman who is in the midst of a very much publicized self-destruction was kind of lauded for it, which is unusual for the Grammys because they are the most conservative institution in the music world. We don't even like to pay much heed to them because they're so ultimately meaningless in the grand scope of things, and they have been for 50 years. And this was their big 50th year anniversary celebration. It's always fun to look at the history. They were formed by a group of the oldest guard of the music industry, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, Doris Day. They were troubled by this new juvenile delinquent scourge of <laughs> rock and roll, and they wanted to establish an award that lauded good music, real music, serious music. Artistic so, excellence, Jim. Artistic excellence in recording. 1958, the first winners, album of the year, Henry Mancini for the theme from Peter Gunn, and uh, Song and Record of the Year, Volare. All right? So, so so it went. I mean, 58 was a year, mind you, that brought us Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Jerry Lee Lewis, Buddy Peggy Holly. Lee, Buddy Holly, Richie Valens. They weren't even nominated, any of those guys. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But the thing is, you point out the fact that, well, true hardcore music fans, you know, the Grammys aren't very meaningful. But 17 million people watched the Grammys this year, and a lot of those people went out the next day and bought records based on what they saw on television. The Grammys are the only award show that can affect buying habits in that way. We saw the Amy Winehouse record and the winner of the album of the year, Herbie Hancock's River, the Joni Letters, won two in Amazon.com the next day. So here's the most prestigious award show in the country. It does have an effect on sales. And it came as a total surprise when, when Hancock's record won album of the year. I think everybody who had watched that telecast was thinking it's going to be either Amy Winehouse with Back in Black or Kanye West with Graduation as Album of the Year. It was going to come down to those two people. They'd been battling it out all night. It was kind of dramatic. When Herbie Hancock's River won, 
everybody's jaws dropped, including Herbie Hancock's. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> How did I get this award? Here's an album that came out in the fall, kind of under the radar. Now it's no longer under the radar. It's on everybody's list this week. What is this album? Should I check it out? Should I buy it? Let's play a little bit of River, the Joni Letters from Herbie Hancock, and then we're going to give our review. Here's one of the tracks from the record. It's Tea Leaf Prophecy, and it features Joni Mitchell on vocals. Uh, the record primarily consists of Joni Mitchell songs, as interpreted by Hancock. And here's Mitchell singing her own song with backing by Herbie Hancock on Sound Opinions. Who is real able-bodied have shipped away key gets her tea leaves red You'll be married in a month, they say These leaves are crazy Just look at this town, there's no men left Just frail old boys and babies Talking to teacher in the treble class Garden in the spring She does the winter shoveling Tokyo Rose is talking on the radio She says I'm leaving here but she don't go Out of the blue Just passing through A young flight sergeant On two weeks leave Says Merle McKee No one else will do And he seals A tea leaf prophecy All those nights Were strong and solemn Private passions and secret stories. That is Tea Leaf Prophecy with Joni Mitchell on lead vocals, Herbie Hancock on piano from Hancock's latest album, River, The Joni Letters, which just won Album of the Year in the Grammy Awards. Hancock has had a long and distinguished career in jazz, a controversial figure because he's had sort of a double life since the 60s. On one side, there is the acoustic pianist who has played with the Miles Davis Quintet, one of the great jazz bands of all time in the 60s, and released classic solo albums like Maiden Voyage in 1965. And then there is the, the jazz fusion artist who has messed around with rock and hip-hop and recorded tracks like Chameleon with the band Headhunters in the 70s, which put him on the map with the rock audience, and then in the early 80s uh, recorded the song Rocket, which employed uh, hip-hop scratching, which caused a huge controversy in the jazz world. That was incredible. You had Anton Fear on drums, and then you had the hip-hop turntables. It was a great, great song. So Hancock's done some really interesting work over the years. But Jim, the matter at hand is River. Wow. You know, I mean, this is a classic Grammy story, Greg. The Recording Academy is a huge and diverse group, and it's political. It's got a Nashville contingent. It's got a New York contingent. It's got a L.A. contingent. And sometimes artists in the middle who don't fit neatly into that get squeezed out. That little band from Seattle called Nirvana never really got their due. Kanye West from Chicago won four minor awards this year but was up for some of the big ones, didn't get those. You know, he just doesn't fit neatly into any of the pigeonholes. What we have here is the contingent of the Recording Academy that still wants to honor Frank Sinatra and Perry Como, you know, <laughs> coming forward and saying good music, genteel music, polite music, and that is what the Joni Letters is. This is a horrible, stultifyingly mediocre record. You know, it crossed our radar when we talked about the other Joni Mitchell tribute that came out this year. We thought it was too boring to even talk about on this show. It, it is, you know, coffeehouse music. I mean, listen to what we just heard. And then contrast that with that other jazz group we had in this studio a few weeks ago. Powerhouse Sound, yeah. Ken Vander. Mark, this is not on the cutting edge of jazz. This is not at the cutting edge of popular music. This is this is nothing. This is Muzak. Well, it's a very subdued record. I mean, we have some great, 
great musicians on this record. And I will say the strengths of this record are Hancock's very open feel to his piano playing. And I think uh, Wayne Shorter's saxophone playing is incredible. A few weeks ago, I made a crack about the only soprano saxophonist I ever care to hear is Wayne Shorter. And he does a magnificent job on this record. But the rhythm section is really pulled back. The pulse of this record is barely there. Some really good players just not being utilized very well. Dave Holland on bass, for example, one of the great bass players in jazz history. But the pulse is, is so subdued, it's not even there. And even worse, I think, are the vocalists who are asked to stand in for Joni Mitchell. Uh, Joni sings the one cut and does, a, I think, a terrific job. Her phrasing is so idiosyncratic that only Joni Mitchell can truly interpret Joni Mitchell's songs. But Tina Turner and Nora Jones, uh, people like this who are asked to step in for Joni on, on other tracks on this record, Corinne Bailey Ray, yeah. they don't do a very good job of singing Joni Mitchell's songs. This is a Muzak record. It is wallpaper. It is tasteful and subdued. And all those things we think about when we associate with the Grammy Awards, it is the right artist with the wrong album to be honored for Album of the Year. Well, one of the things the Grammys is supposed to do is tell us what the high watermarks of music in the year that just ended were. If we go 20, 30 years into the future and we open the time capsule and want to know what 2007 sounded like, where people were really being creative and where they were pushing the boundaries, there's no way that this Herbie Hancock album stands up. I mean, I think that this is a gaff that ranks right up there with the Starland Vocal Band and Christopher Cross. I think it's more in the tradition of Ray Charles's Genius Loves Company and Steely Dan's Two Against Nature and Tony Bennett's MTV Unplugged, where they said, okay, you've had a great career. Now we're going to give you the award, except it's 20 years too late. I mean, Herbie Hancock should have been winning Grammys for Maiden well, he Voyage he won in 65. He won 10 Grammys. He's got, a, he's got a chest full of them already. But he's never won Album of the Year. And he could have won Album of the Year for some of those Headhunters records, some of those Miles Davis quintet records that he was doing in the 60s. Those were great, great records. But this is not in that category. Well, if we had to tell people to buy it, burn it, or trash it. I'm so, Call me a Philistine, if you will. This is a trash it record. I'd burn the, the track that he does with Joni Mitchell, The Tea Leaf Prophecy. I think it's a good example of Wayne Shorter's work, Hancock's work, and Joni's work. But that's one track out of a dozen. So I'd say burn that one track and the rest you don't really need to hear. Part-time lover and a full-time friend The monkey on your back is the latest trend Don't see what anyone can see in anyone else But here is a church and here is a steeple We sure are cute for two ugly people Don't see what anyone can see in anyone else But those have shiny if you've seen the movie Juno, you know what that is. It's a duet that ends the film between two of its stars, Michael Sarah and Ellen Page, called Anyone Else But You, originally done by the Moldy Peaches, this New York anti-folk band that broke up a few years back. We did not review this record when it came out, and it kind of had a slow build. It suddenly, a few weeks after the movie uh, was out, and it started getting a lot of uh, praise from critics, uh, movie critics across the country, the soundtrack was issued digitally originally, was doing really well, then came out on actual CD and shot to number one on the Billboard album charts with acts like the Moldy Peaches on it and Cat Power and uh, Sonic Youth, you know, a fairly obscure underground stuff at number one on the Billboard chart, selling 60 65,000 copies in one week, still doing well weeks and weeks later. Actually, the only number one record that Rhino Records has ever had in 30 years in the music business. So this is now a downright phenomenon. As we prepare to talk about soundtracks for the rest of this show and what works and what doesn't, it seems like we ought to catch up with this Juno soundtrack, Greg, and talk about what's going on here. As I said, there's some established artists on there. Sonic Youth with its cover of A Carpenter's Song and The Kinks and uh, All the Young Dudes by Mott the Hoople, but for the most part, it's dominated by this New York anti-folk music. One Moldy Peaches song, performed by the stars from the film, and then six Kim Ya Dawson songs. She was the uh, woman in the Moldy Peaches, along with Adam Green. She's been having a uh, rather prolific lo-fi recording career ever since uh, splitting with uh, Moldy Peaches. Basically, a girl alone in a room with a guitar that she can't really play, singing and recording uh, rather cheaply and primitively these barely songs. They're kind of uh, sing-song 
rhymy nursery rhymes in mm-hmm. a way. I mean, she really, although she's 40-something and a mom, she uh, tries very hard to capture the kind of song that a five-year-old playing in a sandlot might be making up while they build a castle. Let's play one of her songs, and I think you'll see what I mean. This is indicative of the music of Kim Yad Dawson. It's a tune called Loose Lips. comes from a key scene in the movie Juno. Here it is on Sound Opinions. Loose Lips might sing ships, but Loose Kisses take trips to San Francisco, Double Dutch Disco, Tech TV Hottie, do it for Scotty, do it for the living and do it for the dead Do it for the monsters under your bed Do it for the teenagers and do it for your mom Broken hearts hurt but they make us strong We won't stop until somebody calls the cops And even then we'll start again And just pretend that nothing ever happened We won't stop until somebody calls the cops And even then we'll start again And just pretend that nothing ever happened We're just dancing, we're just hugging Singing, screaming, kissing, tugging On the sleeve of how it used to be How's it gonna be? I'll dropkick Russell Stover Move into the starting over house No matter Rouse and Chester watching me achieve my dreams And we'll pray all damn day, every day That all the dish our president has got us in will go away While we strive to figure out a way we can survive these trying times Without losing our minds So if you want to burn yourself, remember remember that that I love you And if you want to cut yourself, remember remember that I love you And if you want to kill yourself, remember remember that I love you Call me up before you're dead, we can make some plans instead Send me an IM, I'll be your friend Shysters live from scheme to scheme, but my fourth quarter pipe dreams are seeming more and more worth fighting for. So I'll curate some situations, make my job a big vacation, and I'll save a fush and go for this war. My war paint is sharpie ink, and I'll show you how much my dish stinks, and ask you what you think, because your thoughts and words are powerful. They think we're disposable, well, both my thumbs opposable, spelled out on a double word and triple letter score, and... We won't stop until somebody calls the cops, and even then we'll start again and just pretend that nothing ever happened. We won't stop until somebody Loose Lips from Kimya Dawson on the Juno soundtrack, one of the best-selling albums of the year so far, and uh, this year's answer to uh, the indie film that all the hipsters are talking about. Uh, we remember uh, Once from last year, and we remember Garden State from 2004. Basically the same kind of premise here, a, a romance between two misfits surrounded by this underground music and, you know, for no money, and suddenly it becomes a, a huge hit, first with the underground hipsters and then with the mainstream, getting Academy Award recognition. Juno is having that kind of an arc. What's interesting to me about this soundtrack, Jim, is that it is projecting this sensibility on this 16-year-old girl who is pregnant in this movie and saying this is the kind of music that she would listen to. And I buy that to a certain extent, because if you've ever been around a 16-year-old girl, as I am every day with my daughter, (laughs) uh, there is this mixture of maturity beyond her years and also incredibly childlike uh, innocence. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they'll swing between the two poles within a matter of seconds. Kimya Dawson's music, I take it, is meant to evoke that sort of volatility and that sort of uh, childlike innocence. But I don't think Kimya Dawson knows the difference between childlike and childish, between cute and cloying. Mm. And often the line falls on the opposite end of that, the negative side of that. In small doses, I can understand Kimya Dawson. I can appreciate the music, the lo-fi sincerity behind it. But eight songs of this (laughs) is really, really tough to listen to. Well, and there's no context. It doesn't fit with the kinks or the other music uh, on this soundtrack. You know, I I really had a problem with this movie. I've been having an ongoing debate about it with my colleague, Roger Ebert. I wrote in the paper that I hated, hated, hated this movie, (laughs) nodding to his book of movies he hated. He said it was the best movie of the year. Because I was critical of the movie and the soundtrack in a couple of pieces I wrote, no less an organization than the National Review branded me as a feminist. I'm a Nazi and said, I'm the sort of person that wants women to have as many abortions as possible. <laughs> I mean, that's insane. And the movie is stirring up those kind of passions. Yeah. And I think that if you hear this music, you say, what's the fuss about? And if you see the movie, you say, what's the fuss about? You know, what, whatever you stand on on uh, choice for a woman. At the end, this is like, wow, th- people are making this much fuss about this insubstantial a piece of art. And I think that that, that soundtrack doesn't, doesn't hold up. It's, it's really just fluff. 
Yeah, it's it's not a particularly as I said, in small doses this stuff can be interesting and and compelling, but over the long haul it really wears you out. And I think the only thing that uh, saves this soundtrack over the long haul is the inclusion of some cool songs by Bell and Sebastian. The Mott the Hoople song, I, I love to hear all the young dudes. I know it's in the movie. What's it doing it here? It doesn't yeah. really belong in the soundtrack. There, you know, uh, other than the fact that you may have seen the movie in the one scene in the movie, it has no context within here. This is a very scattershot soundtrack. And, and uh, Sonic Youth is on there, even though Juno in the film dismisses Sonic Youth and the Melvins as pointless noise. Yeah, and I can't see myself ever listening to this again. <laughs> this, is, this is very difficult music to listen to over the long haul. I have to give it a trip. Yeah, it's a trash it for me, too. But we are going to suggest some soundtracks that have held up as, as uh, in some cases, greater than the movie on the rest of this show. And then we'll get some calls from listeners as well about some of their choices for the best soundtracks ever. That's coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a little bit of Booker T and the MG's Green Onions in the context of our greatest movie soundtracks of all time show today. That is from the American Graffiti soundtrack, and uh, Green Onions plays as Dawn descends uh, on, the, on the scene. Basically, a day in the life of five high school graduates who are anticipating going off and starting new adventures in life. It tracks their adventures throughout the night uh, with the soundtrack playing in the background as orchestrated by the disc jockey Wolfman Jack. I mean, the, yeah, the music classic. and the disc jockey are the keys to how this movie and plot and character development progress through this 24-hour period. I mean, that, that's a good one, Greg. It's Lucas at his finest, although I'd prefer A Diner by Barry and Levinson. That's I great, that, too. You know, the, the same era, the same 50s, but a little less uh, romanticized. What makes a good soundtrack? I mean, I think that the combination of music and image elevates both, you know, somewhere better. The greatest directors, uh, and we've talked to many of them. We've talked to people like Cameron Crowe and John Hughes. You know, there's, there's some magic that can happen. You know, the scene can be great on its own. The music can be great on its own, but you put them together and it's a peanut butter cup. They're both better together. Exactly. There's two types of soundtracks we're going to look at here, Jim, primarily. One where the music editor used pre-existing music to enhance a scene or to establish character, sort of a comment on the action. And then we're also going to look at original scores, a song specifically written for a movie where the uh, director commissioned specific music to to be written for scenes. And one of the records I'm going to turn to uh, as one of the great soundtracks of all time came out in 1973, The Harder They Come. This was one of the first movies made in Jamaica about Jamaican culture and basically was the introduction to reggae music for for many people of two or three generations, really. It was really a coming out party for uh, reggae music and for Jimmy Cliff, the star of the movie. Basically, the the plot is really simple. Jimmy Cliff portrays Ivan, this this poor country kid who comes to Kingston to make his fortune to to become a a, a musical star. Ends, Ends up being corrupted, ends up turning into a criminal himself, as he's on the lam from the law for killing a cop, his song goes to number one. He's a huge star. And, of course, you, can, you know how this is going to turn out, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a tragic story. 
as each scene plays out, you get these incredible songs, not only from people like Jimmy Cliff, but from the Melodians and from Toots and the Maytals, and really established a beachhead for reggae music in the West and, and allowed an artist like Bob Marley to become a star a few years later. Mm-hmm. Here's one of the great tracks from the Harder They Come soundtrack. It's not by Jimmy Cliff, although people probably recognize those Jimmy Cliff songs by now, uh, Living in Limbo and the Harder They Come soundtrack, and you can get it if you really want it. But I think the key song in the soundtrack and in the movie, it plays out over a particularly harsh, brutal scene, is Toots and the Maytals' Pressure Drop. And here it is on Sound Opinions. Choice, Greg. Soundtrack for The Harder They Come. So it's in the Maytals, Pressure Drop being uh, one of my favorites as well. I'm going to turn to a director who uses music extraordinarily well. Pre-existing songs. Just has an incredible ear for it. Wes Anderson. You know, people always talk about Martin Scorsese and, and you know, nobody used it better. I, I think a couple of directors used it better, and Wes is one of them. I think quite possibly my favorite movie of all time, period. If I had to go to a desert island with one DVD, would be The Royal Tannenbaums. Mm-hmm. It is so perfect a construction of mood and story and a unique world. And a big part of that is the music. Gwyneth Paltrow plays this this troubled sister character, and uh, Anderson quite skillfully uses the music of Nico to uh, kind of fill out the blanks in her character. You know, every time she's on the screen, you're hearing that haunting German chanteuse of the Velvet Underground, Nico, singing these songs that were written by her, like at that point, 30-year younger lover, (laughs) Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown was this kid who had just moved to New York and was smitten by this dangerous, dark, druggy uh, woman, you know, I mean, she was from Mars, right? And he's obsessed with her, and he writes these beautiful, beautiful songs for her. She had that effect on men. Dylan wrote songs for her. A lot of people, Lou Reed wrote songs for her. These Days is a great, great tune. It's integral to the movie, but really, I could have played ten other songs. I mean, Stephanie Says by the Velvet Underground is used, and, and Everyone by Van Morrison, and Judy's a Punk by the Ramones, and this movie even made me like Me and Julio Down by the Schoolyard by Paul Simon. That's how great it is. But I'm playing These Days by Nico from the soundtrack of the Royal Tannenbaums. I stopped my rambling I don't do too much gambling these days These days These days I seem to think about how all the changes came about my way And I wonder if I'd see another highway I had a lover I don't think I risk another these days 
I seem to be afraid to live the life that I have made in song. It's just that I've been losing so Days by Nico singing the Jackson Brown song from the Royal Tannenbaums. We're going to give some more of our picks in a moment, but first we wanted to hear from some of our listeners. Let's go to the phones, Greg. All right, let's talk to Carrie from Chicago. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Hey, thanks. So what's your favorite soundtrack of all time? I would have to go with 24-Hour Party People soundtrack. Oh, which ah, is a, yeah. Of course, the story of Tony Wilson, who started Factory Records in the 70s, I guess. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, absolutely. You're right on about that. The movie is a little more forgettable to me, but the soundtrack I love. That's basically the the cream of those Manchester bands, right? That uh, Definitely. rose up in the seventies. It's sort of like this compilation best of of post punk new wave bands. So you've got like Joy Division, the Buzzcocks. There's a Clash song on there. It's great. Is there a particular standout for you? I definitely like the Buzzcocks Ever Fallen in Love. Oh, that's a classic. Gotta love that. That is one of those songs, Carrie, that uh, no matter when you hear it, you've got to feel better afterwards, right? <laughs> Definitely. I was just thinking that because I'm kind of sick right now, and I was like, oh, it's so fun. <laughs> right, and despite the fact that it's like a song about like truly being miserable, that right. you just fell in love with someone you shouldn't have fallen in love with, and your world's about to end, but you still want to jump up and down and smile. Oh, that's the standout for me. And I feel like it's a perfect one-stop shop. I have so many individual Joy Division albums, but I probably would never rush out to get a Buzzcocks album. I know I've always, I should have, but I just don't. You yeah. need to own, you need to go right now and buy Singles no. Going Steady, because it's the best of by the Buzzcocks. I don't care just... how sick you are, Carrie. you got to run out right now. I'm Actually, kind of just... a, I know, I'm kind of embarrassed I admitted that. <laughs> no, no, no that's all right. That's why we're album. here. And how many things do you ever hear me and Cot ever agree on and say, buy this immediately, right? right. right. So you know it's got to be good. It's got to be good. Carrie, thank you so much for your pick, and we hope you feel better soon. Thanks, guys. Let's talk to Hillary in Richmond, Virginia. Hey, Hillary, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Is there a soundtrack that you dig that you want to uh, talk about? Um, I am really into the soundtrack from the movie Amelie. Mm. Oh, yeah. It's a great one. Um, the composer, French composer, I believe, Jan Tiersen, did all of the instrumentals, and it just kind of really carries the movie for me personally. Now, Amelie's this uh, wonderful movie about mm-hmm. this almost magical woman. She's almost like a good Samaritan in, right. in this movie. Uh, what was it about the music that enhanced that particular piece of uh, cinema? Well, I feel as though the music, it's, it kind of just really helps bring everything to life for me. There's one song that's called La Valse d'Amelie, which would be um, Amelie's Waltz, and it kind of is played throughout the movie but with different types of instruments so the fourth track on the album has a much more upbeat kind of happy feeling and then on 19 it's the piano that they use it with and it makes it much more poignant It's really interesting to see how the instruments that are used can really change the way a musical piece can make you feel. Well, thank you uh, for your pick, Hillary. Good stuff. Thanks. We're going to hear from another caller later on in the show, but I'm going to jump in with another pick for greatest soundtrack of all time. There's so many we could have chosen from. Impossible to distill it just to a few. But here's a a movie that I really loved, and and the soundtrack was just as good. Hype, a documentary that came out in 1996 of the Seattle grunge scene. 
in a lot of ways, Jim, I see this as sort of the answer to Cameron Crowe's singles, yeah. uh, which painted sort of a romantic portrait of what was happening in Seattle and the rise of grunge and the rise of Nirvana and Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam. And, and don't get me wrong, there was a lot of excitement around that scene. Journalists from around the world came to Seattle to do stories about what was happening in Seattle. Time magazine's got Eddie Vedder on the cover saying, all the rage, you know. And meanwhile, there this movie takes the perspective of the 25-year-old prankster who came up with that fabricated yes. lexicon of grunge <laughs> that the New York Times Grunge-speak. actually published. Yeah. You know, she came up with words like cobnobbler, you know, which was grunge, grunge speak for loser. Just made these up. Yeah. And the New York Times printed that stuff. There was a sort of an air of sarcasm and irony that sort of underpinned the whole thing. And to an extent, there was a certain amount of hipster looking down their nose at all these outsiders descending on Seattle. But there was also a great music scene that I think was overlooked as well. There tended to be a focus on the big mainstream bands like Nirvana and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. But meanwhile, there was this incredible underground scene that had been there for 15 years that hype drew attention to. The soundtrack for the hype documentary is really a great one-disc introduction to Seattle music circa early 80s to early 90s. All that great stuff that the mainstream press overlooked. And one of the great tracks on the record is one of the early Seattle bands led by Greg Sage, who, if you talk to anybody, Eddie Vedder or Kurt Cobain when he was alive, this guy was a real idol for a lot of the people in the scene. He was a total do-it-yourself entity, wrote his own songs, took his band on the road when there was no underground scene, and, and really made a mark for Seattle music long before anybody cared. Here he is, Greg Sage and the Wipers, with a song called Return of the Rat from the Hype Documentary Sound track on sound opinions. From the Hype documentary soundtrack, track from The Wipers, Return of the Rat. Sound off on your favorite movie soundtracks or anything else we talk about on Sound Opinions. Call our hotline, 888-859-1800, or email us at interact at soundopinions.org. We'll be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more great movie music.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, do you remember that song? No, I don't. Alone. Alone is an obscure song from a solo album by Colin Newman of Wire. Solo album's called A to Z. It was used by Jonathan Demme, a former rock critic, I will add. Uh, In The Silence of the Lambs, the camera, for the very first time, enters the lair of the mass murderer and psychopath. And it very slowly goes through the basement. And it goes around all these creepy things. The moths are flying. And then it kind of goes up and down to the well where he has the captive. And you're hearing, and just then, when you see the girl and and she's, she's, you know, there to be killed, you hear Colin Newman singing the only line in that song, Retain your sense of humor. It is brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Most people in the world never heard of Colin Newman until this movie comes out as a huge hit. Demi, I think, is a genius. But let's see what some of the other callers say about uh, their favorite movie moments before we get to the rest of ours. We've got Andy from DeKalb on the line. Welcome to Sound Opinions, Andy. Thanks for having me. Now, what's your uh, favorite soundtrack of all time? My favorite soundtrack is the Rushmore soundtrack. Yes! It's a good choice. Why do you love it? When I was thinking about my favorite soundtracks, I thought, you know, what makes a good soundtrack? And I was thinking about something that, uh, a mix of music that really best sums up the film, really captures all the emotions of it, that still sounds good to someone who may have never even seen the film. That's a great criterion. It can act independently of the movie and still sound terrific, but when you see it in the context of those scenes, it's, it really works amazingly well. It's really, really a good piece of music, like one of the best mixtapes ever. And I actually uh, chose earlier in the show, Andy, the soundtrack for the Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, the guy's a genius when it comes to choosing the right music to uh, completely typify his character. So, Andy, is there any particular scene where the music really enhances it for you? creation song, Making Time. I mean, this soundtrack brought that song to a whole new generation. I mean, I'm only 22. We wouldn't have known about that song until the movie came out. And it's just a perfect sounding, rebellious, angst kind of song from the 60s, but it's just timeless. Excellent. Let's hear a little bit of the creation's Making Time. Making Time Making Time by the Creation from Andy's Choice soundtrack for Rushmore. Thanks, Andy. Uh, thank you. All right, Greg, we got a couple more movie music picks of our own. You were talking about sometimes greatness comes in the form of a soundtrack, especially commissioned by an artist for the movie. Tangerine Dream would become a really popular go-to act for a lot of soundtracks. In the 80s, they did uh, the soundtrack for Risky Business, (laughs) if you remember. That's Tangerine Dream. They were a German synthesizer group that started in the late 60s and uh, were really one of the first bands to primarily use electronic instruments as their their main thing. They were coming out of a very avant-garde scene with Stockhausen and the original avant-garde electronic experimental composers. They did it with rock and roll and a heavy dose of psychedelic drugs. Now, Roy Scheider just died recently, and and uh, I think one of the movies that were overlooked in his... I mean, everybody wrote about, you know, he was in Jaws, right? But one of the movies that were overlooked was this incredible 1977 film called Sorcerer. Right after The French Connection and The Exorcist, William Friedkin made this movie. He was losing his mind. He was doing a lot of drugs, a lot of alcohol, a lot of unsafe behavior. And they go to South America and they make this movie about five guys from different corners of the world who basically screwed up in their jobs for the criminal underworld and the mob wants to kill them or the drug lords want to kill them. So they find themselves in this nowheresville in South America. Then they're offered this job. There's a load of TNT on the other side of the rainforest, and you have to carry it across these non-roads and bring it to us. Roy Scheider's one of these guys, right? And over this incredibly tense journey where if they hit a pothole, they blow up, right? (laughs) You know, this music by Tangerine Dream uh, plays. It's the only music in the film, and it's perfectly matched to all the scenes in the movie. The weirdest thing is that while the guys in Tangerine Dream knew what the movie was about and had a rough outline and knew what they were supposed to compose and how long the compositions were supposed to be, they didn't see it. 
and yet it's one of the most perfect mergers of image and music that I've ever seen. It's really big with progressive rock fans, but I don't know if the mainstream folks have ever heard it. I think it's brilliant. After William Friedkin's other use of tubular bells and The Exorcist, this is my favorite all-time creepy progressive rock movie music. Here it is. It's Tangerine Dream with uh, Betrayal, the theme from Sorcerer on Sound Opinions. That's Tangerine Dream with the theme from Sorcerer. Greg Friedkin spent $22 million making the movie, and it only made $12 million. So help them recoup. Buy it on DVD. That's great stuff. Uh, similar era. The exploitation movie era of the early 70s, I think, was a terrific time, not only for movie makers who were working with limited budgets, making these uh, very visually arresting urban dramas based around African-American street life, and in turn inspired a generation of great movie soundtracks. You think of things like Isaac Hayes and Shaft and Marvin Gaye and Trouble Man, and I think the best of them all, uh, Superfly by Curtis Mayfield. These movies, which were dealing with the crime and drug problems in the African-American communities in, in the ghettos, were prime ground for Curtis Mayfield. Here, here was a guy who was on the forefront of the civil rights movement in the 60s, writing very socially conscious lyrics about what was happening to the black community as they were battling racism and oppression in the South, turned his, his eye to the inner city with Superfly and did this amazing job of evoking not only the social issues that were going on, but the people behind them. And in a song like Pusher Man from the Superfly soundtrack, he gets into the mind of the guy who would sell this stuff to his own people, basically kill them. And he doesn't romanticize it. He just paints this very dramatic portrait of this character. And in the very next song, you hear Freddy's dead. Well, here's just a regular person on the street who died because of this guy, what this guy was doing. The other thing that, about Mayfield's soundtrack was the, the incredible musicianship that was going on. Uh, he, he did these beautiful orchestrations with a, an arranger named Johnny Pate. But on Pusher Man, he pulls back all of that orchestration just to focus on the rhythm. An amazing bass line in this track and some really cool drumming. Jim, you as a drummer would probably appreciate the, the roto-toms that are oh, being yeah. used on, on this particular <laughs> track, which is basically tom-tom uh, drums that you can tune. It's only a drum head, and it has a thing, and you turn it, and you can tune it. So the drummer on this track had a whole palette of these roto-toms, and they were orchestrated to sort of create another a symphonic element in the song. So it's all about the rhythm, all about the groove, and this really shady character, the Pusher Man, from Curtis Mayfield and the Superfly soundtrack on Sound Opinions.
Pusher Man from Curtis Mayfield's Superfly soundtrack. Jim, we have one more great soundtrack album to uh, document. Which, which one are you going to choose? Uh, you know, great is, is a big buildup, uh, Mr. Codd. I'm going for a guilty pleasure. I'm sorry. You know, there are some movies that uh, that they're awful. They're god-awful. But, you know, you're sitting around, and it, it's, it's the summer, and you're in air conditioning, and you watch them for the ninth time anyway just because they're on, and you were clicking, and there they were. And uh, for me, one of my guilty pleasures in that vein is a 1996 movie called The Craft. Do you remember this? Oh, my God. There's four girls, and they, they're all like witches, right? It's an awful movie, Jim. It's, it's an awful movie, but it's a lovably awful movie. <laughs> and I'm like a big Feruza Balk fan, you know, okay, and, and Robin Tunney and Nev Campbell, and they're witches in high school. And, you know, it's like the flip side of Carrie. Um, I don't know if you remember this soundtrack. It was, What a high concept of the alternative era this was. It was to get... All these alternative rock bands to cover bands from the new wave era and then in some cases, uh, you know, beyond that, further back in history and do their versions of it. So you have absolute nowhere bands like Our Lady Peace, never thought of again, playing Tomorrow Never Knows by the Beatles and Heather Nova doing I Have the Touch by Peter Gabriel. Now, this sounds on paper like a horrible – the movie sounds horrible. Are you endorsing the soundtrack? soundtrack? I do. I love this soundtrack. I don't know why it works so well. It really, really does. I mean some of the artists are credible. Uh, Juliana Hatfield does a really neat and creepy version of Marianne Faithfull's Witches song. But the song I'm going to play is by Tripping Daisy. Tripping Daisy was the uh, rather stripped-down predecessor to the big orchestral gospel pop band Polyphonic Spree led by Tim the lauder. Here they covered Harry Nilsson's Jump Into the Fire. You know, I, I'm not going to defend, you know, I, I just like watching these chicks run around and pretend to be witches <laughs> to the sound of Tripping Daisy. I don't know why it worked. I don't think I'd like the movie without the music. I don't think I'd like the music without the movie, but now I play the soundtrack and I think of Feruza Balk and it makes me smile. <laughs> Here it is on Sound Opinions. <laughs> Tripping Daisy with Harry Nilsson's Jump Into the Fire from the Kraft soundtrack. You, don't, you Admit it, Greg. You watched and liked that movie, right? <laughs> I did not watch that movie, I have to say. All right. All right. But that was a cool song. 
Next week, Jim, we have a cool artist uh, coming in. Bob Mould is going to uh, play some music for us. He's going to submit to an interview. He's got a lot to talk about. Uh, what a history with Husker Du, Sugar, and now his solo career. Great stuff, Greg. As always, we've got some thank yous to say. Our intrepid production team is Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, Robin Lynn, and Dave, the intern, Mahler. And our fearless leader and executive producer is a man who loves soundtracks. Tori Malatia is really obsessed with soundtracks. We called him in here and said, we're doing this show, and said, what are your favorites, Tori? Number one, got to be Alexander Nevsky, Prokofiev. Um, probably the biggest, big romantic score, Ben-Hur, Miklos Roja. Rich, beautiful themes. The neatest jazzy score, not really jazz, is Chinatown, Jerry Goldsmith. And then an electronic score that married perfectly with action and feeling and, and theme was David Julian's score for Memento. Very subtle, but wonderfully done. Very On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic, so now it's time to hear what you have to say. Hey, what's up, guys? It's uh, Ray. I'm a Chicago expatriate uh, living in uh, Troy, New York now, and I happened to catch the show today, and, man, it's taken you long enough to talk about this uh, girl talk type of, type of music. And then you hit me with this Cheryl Crow. Oh, man. Chicago. I just finished listening to your piece with uh, Greg Gillis and uh, sampling music. And though it's one thing to sample big artists like Elton John, Madonna, or deal with the big companies, a lot of the guys who get sampled are small guys who never saw very much for their music. I'm a doc, and I took care of a jazz funk musician here on the South Side uh, who had a hit with Atlantic back in the early 70s called Right On. And that thing's been sampled, that thing's been anthologized, and he never saw a dime of it, in part because Atlantic screwed him over, but also because no one really seems to care or look the guy up. He died in poverty, so people need to think really carefully about what's happening to smaller artists when they're sampled. Thanks so much, great show. Sometimes it pisses me off, sometimes it makes me happy, but all together, enjoy it. Thanks, bye-bye. Hey, this is DJ Nico from Washington, North Carolina. Uh, just heard your show about the mashups at the end and intro inspection. Um, that is about the worst mashup I've ever heard. And anybody can take pieces and mix some stuff up and make something that sounds like a train wreck. Take somebody with some skill like uh, Go Home Productions or even uh, Danger Mouse or someone uh, with that type of ability to find things that actually go together instead of a, a mass of all these beginnings of songs. I don't think he's the hottest thing to ever come to mashups. Hi, Bob. 
do more shows with some more mashups. So there's every day there's more room for that stuff. Bye. Hi, Jim and Chris. My name's John, and I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area. I have been listening to the show for the past year, and I really enjoy it. I especially enjoyed the last show um, with Girl Talk, and I also really found the interview with Bob Newhart entertaining. It's a great way to make light of the Grammys. You know, as far as I'm concerned, you are the single coolest artist ever to win the Best New Artist Grammy. <laughs> Probably the only cool artist. Well, that's a, that says something about the Grammys. Then. I mean, <laughs> yeah. If I'm the coolest, then the, the Grammys are in a lot of trouble. I just wanted to chime in with that, and you guys keep up the good work. No more messages. To give us your opinion on sound opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with sound opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.